Welcome to Table Radio. My name is Anna Spray, and this is the sermon from our Big Table service from Sunday, September 27th. This is a follow-up on Josh's sermon on being Word and Christ-centered. This week, I spoke about how we can incorporate God's Word into our lives, how we wrestle with the text, and how God reveals Himself to us in that process. Enjoy. Well, it's fun to be back together in the sanctuary again. It's always a little awkward because we've only done this twice now, today being the second time. So hopefully as the weeks continue, we'll get a little bit more accustomed to seeing each other. Part of our face is blocked off. Um, But this is sort of the new normal that we're trying to adjust to over time. Our reading for tonight is called The Call of Jeremiah, and it's from Jeremiah chapter 1. So if you have your Bible with you, or if there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, um, or you have scripture on your phone, you can pull any of those mediums out. And we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and declare whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand, and he touched my mouth and said to me, I've put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. This is the word of the Lord. So two weeks ago, when we first did this, Josh began our series talking about the centrality of the word as a part of our identity. For those of us here at the table, and for those of you at home, we believe that scripture is central to who we are. It is at the very heart of our faith and our life together. And if you wanted to know expressly what it says about this on our website, we say we long to be Christ-focused, word-centered, for we believe that apart from the living Christ proclaimed in Scripture, there is no hope. So, Josh talked about the why a couple of years, a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago. You can tell what week I've had. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about the how. How do we be word-centered and Christ-centered? So we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 1, and we're going to ask ourselves a few questions. First, what did this mean at the time it was written? This is called the context. What does it mean as a part of a chapter? What does it mean as a part of this book, as a part of the Old Testament, as a part of the entire witness of Scripture? And of course, in asking all of these different questions about context, we seek to know how does it testify to Jesus? But that's what the entirety of the scripture does. It testifies to Jesus Christ. So how does it help us know him more? And since through this series we want to become more rooted, we want to become rooted in him. So that's what we're trying to do. So I just want to say before I begin that 
Anybody can do this. It doesn't take a seminary degree to understand things like historical context or theological context. There's lots of great resources out there. I know a lot of you enjoy the Bible Project as one of them. There's lots of good, helpful things out there that can help you understand and read scripture for yourself. So, Jeremiah. <clears throat> this book is a collection of the sermons, poems, and writings um, of a priest named Jeremiah and compiled, put together by his scribe, Baruch. And they kind of read like an anthology that kind of declare his life story. For 40 years, he prophesied to the nation of Israel. And so these are all of the things that he said throughout that time. He is a prophet of God's justice. And the portion we are looking at today tells us a little bit of his background, his biography. So if you're to look at verses 1 to 3, just before the portion I read, you would learn he's the son of Hilkiah. He came from a priestly family who uh, lived about two miles north of Jerusalem, what was called a Levite city, so a city that was given to the priestly families to live in. And his father served King Josiah. So they were close to the king, and they had um, a regular religious role in the community. And about, around about 21 years of age, Jeremiah begins to speak the word of the Lord to the people. He begins to prophesy. Now, all of these events happen towards the end of the second kingdom of Judah, approximately 2,647 years ago. So it's quite distanced from our time today. And Jeremiah is called by God to warn Israel about the consequences of breaking covenant with him. And so we call him a latter prophet because he comes from the latter time period of Israel's history, a very turbulent time. And all that's left of what once was a great nation of Israel, all that's left is this tiny, tiny little remnant in Judah who are kind of holding on for dear life. Well, what is the problem? Why does Jeremiah have to prophesy? Well, Israel was continuing to worship other gods. They were neglecting care of the poor, and they weren't living as God had asked them to. And so Jeremiah warns them. He says, Babylon is going to come and enact God's justice upon you. And eventually, you will be expelled out of the land. You will lose the promised land, and you will be out in exile once again. So for 40 years, Jeremiah is essentially giving the same message over and over. God is going to bring his judgment, repent, stop what you're doing, and return to him. And it's actually a sad story because Jeremiah does see what he predicts come to pass. He sees the siege of Jerusalem, he sees the nation kicked out of the land, and they're in exile once again. But the end of the book does end on a small glimmer of hope. By chapter 52, King Jehoiakim is the heir of Israel, the heir to the throne of David, and he is released from prison and invited to eat at the table of the king of Babylon for the rest of his life. And so the heir to the kingdom lives, and the story continues, and there's a hope, a, a belief that God hasn't abandoned his people or his future promise for a king from David's line. So there's, a, there's some hope there, but up until chapter 52, it's constant warnings of peril. 
Now, for 40 years, Jeremiah tries to get people to listen to him. Now, these number of years aren't necessarily precise as we understand, like in historical texts or linear time, but it's a symbolic number of years that is meant to remind us of Moses spending 40 years leading Israel from slavery in Egypt into the Promised Land. That's what that, hearing that number is meant to trigger in our memories. And the Bible's full of all these lovely pattern repetitions, right? Especially numerical ones. That they're, they're repetitions of a theme, and we're supposed to pay attention to them. So just as Moses <clears throat> spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness to the Promised Land, Jeremiah's 40 years sees Israel expelled from the Promised Land and into exile again. So it's an opposite trajectory. So that's kind of an overview of what is going on here in this book. So, the chapter. Chapter 1 tells us how God calls him to be a prophet, not only to Israel, but to all the nations, to the whole world. And he will ask Jeremiah to accuse Israel, to name their sins publicly, in order that they might be warned and repent. Now we think of this act of naming of sins publicly to be really shameful. Uh, And the idea of judgment is a really dirty word to us, I think. But for them, this was a natural consequence of their actions. They had made a covenant with God. They didn't keep the covenant. And so there were consequences of that. Israel had built idols all over the land. Jeremiah describes this process through the metaphor of prostitution. Israel is the unfaithful spouse who is unfaithful to the one that she claimed to love. And so there's consequences, right? Just like there would be in a human relationship. He also accuses Israel's leaders as corrupt. They've abandoned the law, and that means that the poor and the needy are not being taken care of as the law makes provision for them. Now, not much of this practice is familiar to us, right? This is where we start to feel the historical dissonance. Uh, Building idols really doesn't relate to us very much. But we do understand the effects of social injustice, don't we? Jeremiah cared about social injustice, about the care of the vulnerable and the weak and the needy, just as much as we hope to. And he was trying to get people to pay attention to what breaking God's law would do to the most vulnerable among them not to mention the state of their own souls. We know that only seeking our own interests does ultimately not merit good things in our own life, never mind our relationships with those around us. Well, the main issue for them was that the unspeakable sin of child sacrifice was being practiced as a part of their idol worship. We often think of idols as golden calves or some kind of inanimate object, But cultic worship throughout history has taken a lot of dehumanizing forms. And sadly, infanticide, the killing of children, was thought to be the ultimate form of depravity from God's perspective because it was harming the most defenseless, those that we are charged with caring for. So in light of this background, how much more significant is it that God says, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. God reveals he knows us more intimately than our birth parents do. He formed us and he is invested in the life of every human being that is conceived. And so he's not going to sit idle while the weak and vulnerable are being harmed and such atrocities are being committed. 
For the nation to descend to this level of depravity means that they are really falling apart. They are doing things that no human should ever do, and that actually makes them less than human. Jeremiah's ministry extended through the last three kings of Israel, and throughout all those decades, he continues to ask them to repent over and over while they refuse to listen. But God didn't want to leave Israel to their own depravity and rebellion. He wanted to warn them and to give them opportunity before it was too late. It's too late for us to repent of our sin once we have died. (laughs) Up until that last moment, God continues to provide invitation for us to turn back to him. God doesn't leave us to our chosen sin. And many of us in these last few months have been talking about the awakening that's currently happening around us. The rights of the vulnerable are once again being trampled on, and those who do not have power are being hurt. And I think that if God did not care about this, he wouldn't be bringing all of these societal issues to light right now. God cares. He cares about all people before they even begin to walk around on the earth. And God makes us aware of these things so that we can repent of them, so we can change. And he has been doing the same work, trying to wake us up so that we can return to him. Because in spite of all the mess that we see in the world today and in the world back then, God still desires to renew covenant with us. This is why he sends prophets like Jeremiah to bring warning that will inspire repentance. And in Jeremiah's view, nothing short of complete moral reformation and spiritual renewal could deliver them from the coming judgment. And I think probably the same is true today. Persistent covenant violation, which they were doing, would result in the curses of Deuteronomy 28, the exile from the land and expulsion from God's presence. Because they knew that child sacrifice was explicitly forbidden in the law. You can look at Leviticus 18 or 20 if you want the particulars. But Israel knew what they were doing was wrong. And if you want to hear a little bit more in depth about what God specifically had to say about it, you can read on to Jeremiah chapter 7. He preaches a whole sermon on that particular issue. But this is what the passage was in its original context. But what about the Bible as a whole? Well, there's an important New Testament connection with this passage that I think we should look at. If we turn to Matthew 21... If you have your Bibles or your apps or whatever in front of you. Does anybody remember what Matthew 21 is about? You can shout it through your masks. It's kind of one of those things we tend to remember, even if you're not so good with numbers and memorizing scripture. This is one of the very few times Jesus gets angry. I mean, I couldn't, I was trying to think yesterday of another time where Jesus gets mad. He he seemed kind of perturbed on other occasions, but this is definitely one where he was angry. So in Matthew 21, there's a repetition of this history, right? Israel is back in the promised land, the temple is rebuilt, empty ritualistic worship is alive and well, social justice is being neglected, and God's people are trading in the temple courts. There's money changers and people selling all kinds of things that have no business being in the temple. 
God's people have placed a false sense of security in the temple alone, and while being under the rule of Rome, which is the newer equivalent for Babylon, they are neglecting the law and the worship of God. So there's similar circumstances here. And Jesus responds by clearing out the temple. It says that he turns over tables and expels them out of there. Chapter 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out, uh, sorry, verse 12, he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he starts to quote scripture at them to remind them, what are you doing? (laughs) He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. God's people continue to miss the mark. And this is the story of Jeremiah all over again. And Jesus and Jeremiah share the same mission, to tell people to repent, to cut out the bad behavior, and to return to the Lord. Eventually, Jesus gives his own body on behalf of these rebellious covenant breakers. And he says that all who trust in him are given new hearts and new lives. And God offers his spirit to be in us to help us keep these commandments that we can't seem to keep. And this is all done so that we might do the kinds of things God wanted from his covenant partners to give him true worship, acts of justice, protection of the innocent, and obedience to his word. And every time the law is given in scripture, whether the Old Testament or the New, it is almost immediately broken by people who are charged to keep it. To cure us of this, God says through his prophets, he will write the law on our hearts so we don't forget it. And so where Israel failed, Jesus fulfilled. He fulfills the covenant that God was always renewing with his people because we just couldn't seem to accomplish it on our own. So let's turn back to Jeremiah. God chooses this one man from a family of priests to deliver a difficult word to a hard-of-hearing nation. He tells him he knows him intimately. Before Jeremiah was even aware of God, God says, I knew you. I watched over you. He set him apart and intended him to be a prophet to all the nations. So Jeremiah is right where God wants him to be. And almost immediately, Jeremiah raises objections. I can't speak. I'm too young. All of these issues. But doesn't God already know these things about him? Didn't God just say, I knew you before you were born? He knows Jeremiah better than he knows himself. And God responds by saying, don't be afraid. He will give him all that he needs to do the job he has for him to do. So we've looked at these words in their original context, how they relate to the New Testament, to Jesus. But what do these words mean to us? Well, we've talked a little bit about injustice and concern for God's law. That applies to us, right? We care about those things. But we are not first century Jews. We know very little of the history of Israel and religious Jewish law, and so we come to this text from a very different place. When I first opened up this passage, I was probably about 11 years old, 
And I've shared with you guys before that I was adopted as a baby. So reading the words, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, meant everything to me. It meant that I wasn't an accident, that this didn't just kind of happen. And even though I didn't know my birth parents, God did. He knew my whole life, and he was with me even before the events that occasioned my birth happened. And that was deeply significant to me. And so this realization shaped me as a person, right? If you realize that as a young child, that starts to inform your ideas about who God is and what you're doing in the world. When I was 15, I gave my first public testimony to Christ, and I resonated again with Jeremiah's words. I do not know how to speak. I am too young. These words began to take on a greater meaning as I was called into ministry. Um, I worked at a Christian camp for several years. I became a youth pastor. And that whole time, even though I didn't know what I was doing, I knew that God did, that he would give me the words to say and help me with what he was calling me to do. Now, you could say, legitimately, that I was proof texting. I I really was taking the words out of their context. I didn't know anything about temple worship. I didn't know anything about Jewish law. And I was taking the words out of context and interpreting them however I wanted. But God let me do that. (laughs) I don't think that frustrated him at all. I think he actually honored that interaction. I was young. I didn't know any better. But God wasn't really offended by that. It was all a part of me taking the word and applying it to my life and my situation. And as I stumbled along, even in my ignorance, I began to grow in understanding and experience and education. And and God started to reveal to me more of what his word really meant. God trusts us with this. He trusts us (laughs) in spite of our ignorance and in spite of how we mess up. So God's word becomes personal to us when we read it. It's different than reading a history textbook or um, a great work of fiction. It relates to us. God's word is personal, it is for everyone, and it shapes and changes anyone who reads it. So when I first read this, I understood, oh, God has a relationship with children in the womb. Okay, as one of those children, I'm grateful for that. But this also means God has a relationship with all children in the womb, wanted or not. And so, as I grew and aged, I came to believe in making a redemptive choice when it comes to fertility. So it began to inform my life personally, politically, socially, in all of the ways God's word starts to shape If I believe this to be true, then I have to examine what I think about this. And it sort of leads us along the way. I didn't understand perfectly what this meant the first time I read it. But that was totally fine. As I continued to read and grow and mature, God is always at work, regardless of our ability to understand well or not. Now, of course, there's limits to that, right? Like, we don't want to start believing things that aren't in the text. And the text can be confusing at times. 
But even if we don't do all of these steps of understanding and study well, even if we might proof text from time to time, God is still at work. He still speaks. Being an expert is not a prerequisite to reading scripture. God can overcome those insufficiencies. It's good for us to want to become better learners, to want to understand what is this book about, what does it mean, how does it inform, how does it point to Jesus. But it's okay if we mess that up sometimes and we don't do it perfectly. And at times we will feel as Jeremiah did. We will feel too young um, to speak or to understand or to read. I know one of the first time I I led uh, a Bible study, I was terrified. What if I don't have all the answers? And I quickly learned that you don't have to have all the answers. (laughs) It's, It's okay not to answer all of the questions all of the time. Sometimes somebody else in the group has the answer. But that's why we read scripture together so that we can help each other. God says that he can overcome some of these gaps because he is the one that has been forming us since before we were aware of anything, before we could pick up a book and read. There's so much grace given to us when we try to come close to the Lord. As I said, he always wants to renew covenant with us. He's always waiting to engage with us. So every time we pick up the word and try to engage with him, He's going to honor that time. The Holy Spirit can help reveal to us, even in our ignorance, who God is and and what he seeks to do in our lives. So God is revealing himself through this book regardless of how much or how little we know. But we need to persist. We need to provide opportunity for God to do his work. Remember, he wants to be a faithful covenant partnership with us. So that means we need to be available. We need to try. You know, it's like remembering to talk to your friends or call your mom. We need to engage with him. It's important for us to persevere in reading scripture. It takes time and it takes our commitment, but it does produce fruit along the way. So I just really want to encourage you because we had our neighborhood table discussion last week, and there was some feedback from people that, you know, this is hard to do. It's not easy to pick up the Bible and to understand it for yourself. But we really want to encourage you to keep trying. And of course, you know, we're all here to help. But you also have each other. You're not doing this alone. And so we're hoping that as you guys pick up the word in your Bible study groups, in your DNA groups, in our neighborhood table groups, that we're all trying to help each other discover God, to know him better, and to become more rooted in him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, may you teach us to love your word. For only you have the words of eternal life. So help us, Lord, to read, listen, learn, and understand what you have given us to know. Father, we pray today that you would protect the vulnerable, those who are sick, those who are poor, those who are suffering. Teach us to care about them, Lord. And as we open your word, help us to have the heart for the world that you do. 
Help us to understand what you have written and to be transformed by those words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That's why we praise you. Thank you for listening to Table Radio, an extension of the life of the Table Church, a community in Victoria, B.C. Our mission together is to love God, love each other, and to love and bless our neighbors so that we may see Christ revealed in common life. Music for this episode provided by the Preparation EP, written and arranged by Coco Relieve, and can be found at thetablechurch.bandcamp.com. To learn more about our community, please go to tablechurch.ca. Cannot